This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Who is we? I should only speak for myself. As a child, I followed historic Jewish women, meaning I lassoed them the way a cowboy wrangler loops his rope around a steer or calf. Growing up in Texas, I went to rodeos, maybe at least one prison rodeo, prisoners being especially willing to risk their lives in wholeness of body for freedom to perform a danger and in public. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to S.L. Weisenberg, author of Cancer Bitch, and now author of a brilliant collection of essays written over the course of years and published as The Wandering Womb, Essays in Search of Home. These are personal essays that weave in history, Judaism, feminism, and glimpses of Weisenberg's struggle to navigate the world as the asthmatic granddaughter of Ashkenazi Jewish immigrants. Hi, Sandy. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, hi, Galit. Thank you so much for having me. You write, I let myself be pushed along the waves of others' approval. That's what a girl child does. A Jewish girl child with asthma and shyness, who's tall for her age, gawky. How do you think you rose from that to become the confident, clear-eyed writer, sharp editor, and thoughtful teacher that you are today? I don't think I've risen. I think I've still got that in me. I mean, don't we all have that in ourselves? Yeah. And we're all a mixture, and we all have that um, inside. I, I have become medium or medium short, and I've accomplished more things than I did when I was a girl. Um, and I moved away from my home, which made things easier. But uh, because I realized there are more worlds than the world you grew up in. There's not just one jury out there. Right. The essay that gives the collection its title, The Wandering Womb, describes a history of silly myths and legends about women 
What was the most ridiculous or horrible thing you remember reading or hearing? Um, the idea that the womb is an animal and also the penis is an animal. Uh-huh. But, um, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but then you can also see how it might be apt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe all our all our organs are animals. Maybe. It'd be interesting to think about. Um, the mouth could be an animal. Kind of gross to think about, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you recall meeting and traveling with a guy in Istanbul, and five years later, you stayed with him and his sister in Vienna. What war was he talking about being thrown in his face? Um, and why do you think that memory stayed with you? Well, there was a contrast. I just met this guy as I was walking from the tourist office in Istanbul, and our eyes met. And <clears throat> excuse me, I hadn't, um, I don't think I'd slept. It was like six in the morning. I'd taken a a really long bus from um, a port in East, in uh, Turkey. And um, and then we just started talking and it was just nice to be with somebody who spoke English and I was traveling by myself and I just hung out with him and his friends. And I was the first Jewish person he had ever met. He was from Austria. And so sometimes when you first meet somebody, you can talk about really deep things because you don't have the little things in common. So we were talking about World War II and about is war ever justified? Is is terror ever justified? Um, we were talking about the Bader Meinhof gang, which was an ultra left group in Germany that would um, kidnap and maybe kill people. I'm not sure. Um, and I forgot when I told him I was Jewish, but he had never seen a Jew in the flesh. He'd only seen a rabbi on TV. Mm. And so I was this regular person who was Jewish and. We just had a great time. And then when I went to Vienna and he said I could stay with him, uh, he wasn't um, he wasn't interested in those kinds of things. And he wanted to be a good tour guide, a good tour, a good host and um, and show me all the things that you were supposed to see in Vienna, like uh, the cathedral and the castle and the museums and I was just sort of casually doing Jewish research um, and I didn't want to necessarily see those other things. And I just felt I was like, just, just laser focused on one thing and then mm -hmm. he didn't approve of that. And um, we walked through downtown and there were, there were these big signs with pictures of the rubble of how, Vienna had looked at the end of the war and he said he was just tired of the war, World War II being thrust into his face. Mm, okay, I understand. So wow. I just felt, here I was, I'm this like ghost of the past coming to interrupt the present and um, I wasn't acting the way I was supposed to. Mm. Along with history, geopolitical happenings, and anti-Semitism, you weave in beautiful stories about your family and how you all came to be in Houston. Can you say something about that? Uh, it was meandering. Uh, there were some relatives from Lithuania, I suppose, who were living in West Blockton, Alabama, 
And so my great-grandparents ended up in Selma. They apparently, as far as I can tell, they came over from Lithuania, this little shtetl called Pushvatin in Kovno Gabernia, which means near Kaunas. And somehow they got down from New York to Selma, Alabama, which was a very thriving city in those days. It was the queen city of the Black Belt. And um, there was a Jewish community there. So they, I guess they sort of fit right in. Um, they didn't have any money. So my grandfather, my great-grandfather uh, was a peddler for a while until he had a little store or stoa. They, mm-hmm. you, even you go down there now and they talk about, are you going to the stoa? And um, and then I had a another relative who had a stoa selling dry goods. Mm-hmm. They moved for some reason to Laurel, Mississippi. I'm not sure. Maybe they weren't as prosperous as they wanted to be. Maybe there were too many stoas in Selma. And um, so my my father was born in Laurel, Mississippi. And the family was doing pretty well. And my grandfather had retired at a pretty young age and he had bought the Woolworths building. And then came the depression and the house was foreclosed on as were at least 25% of all houses in the country. And they had talked about moving to a larger city anyway. And they had talked about New Orleans or Houston or... I'm not sure where else. And somehow they decided on Houston and came to the big city. Okay. Um, Sandy, how did you, do you know how you came to be passionate about Black history and civil rights? Do you remember a moment? What inspired you? I don't remember. I, um, I don't remember how. I my sister, for example, and some of my friends remember seeing um, signs on water fountains that said black and colored. And mm-hmm. I don't remember that. But uh, a lot of people, including us, had the family had employed black women to um, clean the houses and take care of the kids. And that seemed like a very normal thing. And then you think about it and you wonder why people come from the other side of town mm-hmm. and are taking care of your house and taking care of you and where did they come from and what's their history and why is this so and yet all the people in your neighborhood are white and all the people in your school are white I, it might be just from that this natural inquiry mm-hmm. a lot of uh you, you you write about it with passion most of the essays in The Wandering Womb are a complex combination of your memories, family stories, history of the place you describe, and facts that clearly require research. So how do you research your essays? Does the research come before or after you start writing? I honestly don't know. I think it, it it's a collage or a mosaic in the research and the background and also in the end product. When I went to Selma the first time, I had a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, and I used the money to go to the South, where my family had been. 
and just to look around. And I think after I looked around and interviewed a few people, then I started doing research. Sometimes in that very city in Laurel, I arrived at the public library and I thought they would be fascinated that I'd come from Chicago and wanted to go through old newspapers. And instead they said, um, well, the that room is closed today. Hmm. And I said, well, I came from Chicago. I'm sorry, that room is closed. You can't go in there. So that was not the Southern hospitality no. I imagined. <laughs> in oh. um, Selma, I think I'd made uh, reserve, res- I'd made, let me start over. In Selma, I think I had contacted the Jewish community and the man who was president of the temple met me and gave me a tour of the temple Mm. and talked about the Jewish history there. And from there, I went to the Selma Library, which is really set up for researchers and especially genealogical researchers. And the Jews of Selma and Jews who'd grown up in Selma who lived elsewhere had had a big reunion maybe 10 years before, and they had documents from that. Mm. So they were very aware of their Jewish history. But there's a good um, ending to this story. I went to Jackson, Mississippi, which has a state archive. And there I could find all the newspapers from Laurel, Mississippi, where my father was born. And I looked in the society sections and I could see that the doings of the Jews were reported on the same level as the doings of the non-Jews. And when my father was born, there was something in the society section saying, Saul Weisenberg is all smiles with the birth of his first son. So they were on equal footing. Wow. With with the white, Mm. upper class, middle class, upper middle class, merchant class. Mm. That's so interesting. In various essays, you describe in a mostly funny way your battles, not so funny battles, with asthma, allergies, and other health challenges. But you also delve deeply into studies and writings about sleep deprivation. So do you still, as your mother used to say, burn the candle at both ends? I do, but I can compensate for it a little bit more. When you're in high school, you can stay up all night, but you still have to go to school in the morning. And now that I am older, <laughs> I don't have to get up at 7.30 in the morning anymore. Right. I, When you're young, you think when you're older, you will have slain all your demons. But when you get older, sometimes you realize you have the same problems you had when you were younger. Mm-hmm. And I still have a problem of staying up too late. I get a second wind. I go online. Um, I'm writing or else I'm pretending that I'm writing or researching. And then you look up and it's three in the morning and you think, oh, no, I did it again. Mm. And your choice is either to get up at nine and be very cranky and to take a nap. But if you take a nap, then you're not want to go. You knock. Let me start over. If you take a nap, you're not going to want to go to bed until really late the next night and then perpetuate the cycle. Um, you can do yoga nidra on record on a recording on your phone. That might help a little bit. Um, so I think I burn the candle at both ends 
but maybe not as quickly. Okay. I loved the essay about how you went through sorority rush at Northwestern when you were almost 30 and teaching. What part of that story still sticks in your craw? I'm appalled at myself that I did that. Oh. I think it <laughs> might be unethical to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the issue was I was 29. I had worked for a newspaper for two years. I was back at the university where I hadn't really done that well. I was teaching journalism and I was teaching graduate students in journalism. And it may have been imposter syndrome, which seems to be a big deal now. Every so often, the media or the zeitgeist uh, remembers that there's such a thing as imposter syndrome. And I couldn't quite believe that I was a faculty member and I was teaching these older students. And I also felt when I was back on campus that I was the same age I was when I had first gotten there, which was 18. And I was trying to work out who am I? Am I 18? Am I 29? Am I a student? Am I faculty? Do I belong here? Do I not belong here? And so I think that going through Swarty Rush was maybe my own personal psychodrama. So funny. Can you explain why you took a class at Neiman Marcus at age 11? It's hysterical. Because it was there. It was there. It was free. I was so into fashion. I um, was reading that as part of that essay out loud at the University of Scranton recently. And I was surprised how much I mentioned colors and the colors I used to wear and the outfits I used to have. I was very, very well dressed. And I was very, <laughs> um, people who know me will be surprised. I was very invested in what was fashionable and combining things uh, like getting a gray culotte skirt and a gray vest that came together, but then mixing and matching so that sometimes I wore it with a red and black vest and a white shirt and sometimes with um, a red a red blouse. And in those days, you had to wear a dress to school. And maybe that's why we were so into fashion because you couldn't wear jeans and a t-shirt. That was unthinkable. In eighth grade, there was a protest by some girls and they all wore jeans. I was too scared to do that. <laughs> and one girl in math put her feet up on the desk next to her, which was unoccupied. And the math teacher said, look what happens when people wear jeans, they put their feet up on the furniture. <laughs> that's the that's the path one goes down. <laughs> yes. Apparently. Yes, exactly. exactly. I totally agree with your statement that you, quote, don't go on vacation so much to see a country, but to feel it. Is that still the case today? And can you say more? I don't know. Maybe I go to see it. Uh, when I went to Barcelona, I definitely went there to see it. I have long been an admirer of Antonin Gaudí, and it was amazing to see his work everywhere and to see his influence. And I would even walk around by myself sometimes 
I was with my husband, but we had some separate time. And I would just go into an apartment building and just look at the lobby. And it was this beautiful little Art Deco lobby or Art Nouveau lobby, mostly Art Nouveau. Uh, so you could see beauty wherever you went. So maybe I am partly looking to see or mostly looking to see. Ah, so what changed? What changed? From you wanting to feel the country to now wanting to see it. Maybe getting on Prozac and other things <laughs> like that. Okay. Um, I I think all, it depends on where you are. When I went to Central America, I wanted to understand it because it was in political ferment. So maybe that was more of the feeling. Mm -hmm. And in Barcelona, there is some political ferment. Excuse me, I'm going to clear my throat. <clears throat> but it was not the same kind of political ferment in Central America, which was really between the haves and have-nots and um, the peasants and the brutal dictatorship and the independence and um, clergy against the dictatorship and the intelligentsia. In Barcelona, the Catalonians were or Catalans wanted their identity uh, to be respected and to make their language um, the language of the region or state. I don't know. As Catalan must be a state or a province, but it's not the same as the government mowing people down in the countryside. Right. So maybe that's the difference. Yeah. Even though we're. I think the essay you're talking about is Costa Rica, which has been called the Switzerland of Central America. But that was the first time it was in Central America. So I think I wanted to understand what it felt like to be in Central America. I identified with it. I loved that philosophy. I also loved the essay titled Up Against It. Is it oh. a list of explanations, a list of excuses, or are you explaining the world to yourself? I'm explaining why I have angst mm. and where the angst comes from and how the angst is manifested and what causes the angst. So it's just a list of because I did this, because I did this, because someone did this, because I did this and so on. And that came from a very emotional place. It was very powerful, really. Thank you. So Sandy, what are you working on next? I surprised myself by starting to work on short stories. And the short stories are mostly historical. And they all contain a piece of a 1930s movie. The piece is the plot. So mm -hmm. I start a short story and there's a little bit of a plot just to give it a spine and then it grows out from there. Can you give an example like what kind of a movie that you would take? Um, what? How does that work? I saw an old movie uh, from 1931 called Bad Girl. Mm -hmm. And the girl isn't really bad at all. She's not a girl. She's a young woman who's a model at a store and she happens to meet a guy and um, she lives with her brother and his family in a tenement. So I moved that to Berlin in the early 1930s, just before Hitler 
as a Jewish woman. She lives with her brother and his family in a tenement. He's a big communist activist. And the the movement comes when he is arrested. That sets everything in motion. Mm-hmm. But it's all the, just the little piece of plot gives you that idea. That's such a cool idea. Anyway, I'm very they, bad on plot. Well, you just need a little something, a little mm-hmm. impetus. Mm-hmm. Sounds like. So thank you so much for joining me today. I loved reading your book and I look forward to the short stories. I so appreciate you having me on, Galit. Thank you. Again, thank you for joining me. This is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to author, teacher, and editor S.L. Weisenberg about her memoir, The Wandering Womb, Essays in Search of Home. Hope you all have a great book to cuddle up with today and always. Happy reading.